Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week's talk, Working Effectively with Patients with Borderline Personality Disorder, was presented by Dr. Brian Palmer at the Clinical Reviews Conference held on November 14, 2016 in Rochester, Minnesota. Our next speaker is Dr. Brian Palmer. Uh, Dr. Palmer did his uh, psychiatric uh, training at Mass General. We're very happy to have him here at Mayo as he is uh, one of our excellent speakers and educators. And today he's going to talk to us about working effectively with patients with borderline personality disorder. This is the home stretch. It's difficult to follow all those um, scare, scary diseases. Um, the, I'm having anxiety, actually. You know, that I think last year, didn't we cover the treatment for anxiety as exposure? So I'm, I'm sitting with my anxiety, managing it right up here on the stage in front of you all. All right, so I want to talk about borderline personality disorder. And this is the... This is the patient population that makes a lot of people struggle. I did a survey of Mayo staff and asked, you know, what do you, when you have borderline patients, what's that mean? Trouble. I'm probably going to be unable to satisfy them, if, especially if they're not under the care of a psychiatrist. Appreciate the compliment. Heart sink, truly, as much as I try to have compassion and understanding for these patients, the convoluted and circuitous thinking leaves my brain hurting manipulation by the patient, and then anger toward me when they perceive I won't do what they want. They seem to go out of their way to make things difficult for me. When they present a problem they want to help you solve, there are always conditions that make it untenable. Or, I feel like I'm growing a horn out of my head. I better buy a new hat. <laughs> so, borderline is a cluster B personality disorder. Um, that did not change with DSM-5. The committee actually never came to an agreement to change anything with personality disorders in DSM-5, which probably says something about people who specialize in personality disorders. But <clears throat> it has these criteria, and I, I'm going to go through these, and then I'm going to explain how they work. So the criteria I've grouped here in four areas. One is patients with borderline are interpersonally hypersensitive. They're organized around being afraid that people are going to leave them. The relationships are then unstable, and they go through life with chronic feelings that they're empty inside. In reaction to their context, they have affective symptoms, um, instability, quick onset depressions, along with problems with anger. They have behavioral problems. For diagnosis, we separate out the suicidality and self-injury or cutting from the other um, aspects, about 75% self-injure by cutting. And they have a disturbed inner sense of self. I think more clinically useful is to think about the disorder this way, that when a patient feels connected, connected to you, connected to the new boyfriend, whomever, they settle down. They become a bit idealizing, dependent, rejection-sensitive. Inevitably, however, as you well know, there's some interpersonal stress. The boyfriend is out with his friends. The doctor says no to that prescription medication, whatever. In which case, the patient feels threatened. And that's when they have the symptomatology that you think of as borderline, where they can be devaluing, self-injurious, angry, anxious, help-seeking. Now, in reaction to that, the other person may 
get more supportive. Sorry, I was out with my friends. I had my phone off. I didn't realize you were calling. Oh, okay, okay. Or they may pull away. Are you kidding me? 37 text messages? I'm out of here. And in reaction to that can come the aloneness, which is what the patient was threatened by to begin with and what they're struggling with. And that's where you see the dissociation, the paranoia, the impulsivity. I'll walk out into traffic. If people find me, then I want to be alive because that means people care. If not, I'd rather be dead anyway because it means no one cares. And again, they could elicit more support. And I think that way of thinking about this as a disorder that really depends on interpersonal context is useful. Now, that context often includes all of us because people seek out care and we're caregivers and that elicits some of these same dynamics. So we'll go through that. I want to talk a little bit more about the disorder itself and then um, spend the last half of the talk on what we can do practically to manage it well. So it, it's common, 20% um, of psychiatric clinical samples, most of the primary care literature shows about 10 to 12% of your patient population, the ones who come into care, have borderline. Um, the community samples, 1.2 to 5.9, I'm sorry for the large range, most of us think it's 2 to 3%, but actually the, the most, the 40,000 door-to-door survey, big epidemiological study, is where the 5.9% comes from, so I have to include it. About 75% female in clinical samples, though in the community samples that tends to be more 50-50. Men may be more likely to end up in substance use disorder treatment or prison for some of the same behaviors that women end up in care for. I, I don't know, honestly, what the um, full explanation for that is. It's a highly genetic disorder. Um, about 55% heritability, meaning the, the amount of the disorder that's explained by genetics is about 55%, which puts it ahead of, in my field, it puts it ahead of everything we treat except for schizophrenia and bipolar, and compared to most medical illnesses, it's also ahead of hypertension and diabetes as well. In the brain, there's some interesting things that happen. One of my favorite studies is an old study now. They, they showed these four faces um, to, the, to people in an MRI scanner, fMRI scanner. And this, do you know what, she's, what this face is showing? If you look at the key, you can tell. But she's, she's, she's sorry, I should take that off the slide. She's, she's neutral, happy, sad, afraid. The borderline patients are more likely to see the neutral one as angry, and some of you just now did, I do. I mean, I, those of us who are kind of emotionally sensitive may be more likely to see her as angry as well. The borderline patients do. But what was interesting about this study is in the scanner, they were looking at the amygdala response, and compared to the controls, the borderline patients had more amygdala activation for all four faces. The simple act of looking at a face prompted a greater response from the emotion centers in the brain, which might be a tough thing to go through life if your emotion centers get more active. Now this goes away when they administer intranasal oxytocin, um, the hug hormone, and people feel held or connected. And in the corollary is that just at that moment of high limbic activation, people's cortex seems not to work as well. Most of the studies of the anterior cingulate and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the thinking parts of the brain, suggest that it's harder to think straight in the face of that affect of arousal. And that really becomes the difficulty of the disorder. 
we'll talk about what to do about that later on. So there are no studies that show that it's overdiagnosed. It's, it's mostly underdiagnosed and often confused with bipolar disorder. Um, when they're depressed, you can still make the diagnosis accurately. Now, there's been some interesting literature that's come out in the last, actually now it's probably 15 years, about the course and outcome that may be different than what they taught you in medical school and certainly what they taught me in medical school. And the first study was this was the McLean study of adult development. In that study, they took um, 260 inpatients, 290 inpatients, and they followed them out 10 years. And two years into that study, the blue line, a third of people no longer met criteria. You have to have five of those nine for diagnosis. A third fell below that. That was a surprise. I was taught personality disorders lasted forever and there was nothing you could do about them. By four years, 50% no longer met criteria. By 10 years, 80% of that sample no longer met criteria. That was a surprise to psychiatrists. Most of the personality disorder people really were convinced this was not something that made a lot of sense. And then a second confirmatory study came, the, other, the only other big NIH-funded study, of multi-center study, well-done study of um, another 200 borderline patients, followed them out 10 years. Beginning of that study, the average patient met 6.7 of the nine criteria, on down, on down, on down. So that again, most patients with borderline get better. And we do have a sampling bias in our training. We only see the ones who don't. And you, but if you think about it, you don't see 50-year-old women coming to the ED cutting themselves the way you do 22-year-olds. I mean, there is a way in which this does fit your experience. And it is something to keep in mind, that this is a disorder that should improve. And once it improves, it tends to stay better. That said, pretty severe illness. After, in that 10-year period, only a third by the end of that 10 years had full-time work or a stable marriage or partnership. Borderline rendered the depression really treatment resistant until the borderline improved. In fact, borderline was the most common reason for persistent depression. So still a severe psychiatric illness, um, but one that can get quite a bit better. So in the last decade, we've seen a promulgation of several empirically validated treatments, and they run the spectrum from behavioral approaches all the way to psychodynamic or psychoanalytic approaches. But I think what's important is what they have in common. The ones that work tend to be structured, not too reactive, anticipate crises, get support and supervision for each other, therapists are active, and progress is monitored. And those are the principles that I'm gonna to try to apply to a primary care setting in the, the rest of this talk as we try to think about what can you do in your office that keeps this from getting so circuitous and confused and is actually helpful to the patient. So the first idea is that re these patients are highly reactive and treatment that reacts to their reactivity is perilous. So patients with borderline often seek treatment in reaction to whatever their emotional state is and they end up in the medical system which is designed to react to problems. They get tests or they get new prescriptions or they get a med added or whatever it is. My favorite study was in the journal Headache they took a, a patient with patient sample half with borderline, half without borderline, and they put them through a migraine, um, migraine headache algorithm. And it was pretty basic. You had a, a preventive medicine, you had an abortive medicine, this was basic migraine management. And the borderline sample had more medication overuse headaches, more unscheduled office visits, and they didn't respond very well to treatment. 
And I think that's really, that fits my experience of, of my patient population. So we're gonna show a video next, and I wanna, I wanna try to focus on some things in the video <clears throat> where what we're gonna try to do, this is a patient of mine that may look familiar to you, um, we're gonna try to help her lower her emotion and clarify her own experience first by validating. Just try to get what's going on with her. Then we're gonna consider what to do. We're gonna avoid saying but and try to use and, and I'm gonna to try to let her make her own decisions about what to do. Okay, we'll see if we can, and then we're gonna talk about some of these principles. the headaches. I mean, okay. it's exactly the headaches, but I left that visit last week, and this is what I told your nurse, that I didn't have a headache then. I'm not sure that you appreciated how intense the headaches can be. I had one this morning, and I thought, well, here's like a teaching opportunity for you. I mean, I could like help you understand me a little bit better. Plus, I didn't like really how that visit went last time with all the focus on what I have to do with the medications and taking oh. them every day as if, you know, it's my fault that I, that I get these headaches. And so I felt like there's a lot of kind of blame that you put in there, a little judgment maybe that you put in there that I didn't appreciate. And the more I thought about that, the more, and I told your nurse who I don't like, um, she is very protective of your schedule and I suppose that's what you want, you know, pit bull to keep the patients from coming in and bugging you. But that is, um, what I need is actually more of your time, and at the times that I need it, like when I have a headache. Okay. So it sounds like today you're coming in hoping that I can get how bad these headaches are for you. I would like that. Okay. And I, it actually, it is helpful to see that because I, I get just feeling it from you how upset you are about it. I know this must be awful for you, and you didn't ask to have headaches. I mean, this is, being in pain is not something anybody requests, and I, I appreciate that this is not an easy situation. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that is not how I felt you reacted last week. Okay. You know, so, um, so thank you for saying that, because I wasn't sure if you really were, you know, getting that. Okay. So. It sounds like feeling supported becomes really important to you, especially when you're having a headache. Yeah. And yeah. I appreciate that. In my mind, I'm thinking of two things with that. One is to prevent the headache to begin with, so there's less urgency yes. about meeting the yes. support. And second is to make sure we're giving you the right kind of support. Because if your well-being depends on your access to me, that that's going to be a recipe for disaster. I, I may or may not be available, etc. I want to help you be able to manage your own well-being in these moments, um, whether or not you can access me. That's the long-term goal. I hate to. I don't think it would be a good treatment goal to build a dependency on me um, for you. That's not much of a. And you wouldn't want that either. Mm -hmm. I, whether or not I would want it, I don't think it'd be good for you. People were laughing. I actually have a good, I had a good response. Mm -hmm. I, whether or not I would want it, I don't think it'd be good for you. Okay. 
is there a barrier for you with um, taking the medicine? I hate taking medicine. Yeah. I hate taking all medicine. I don't like taking, I don't like to take anything. Right. So in the moment, it feels like, I don't have a headache right now, why would I bother? And then you get That it. is exactly it. And then you... Oh. Aww. I thought it was going pretty well. Yeah. Wish you would. Okay. Uh, that is it. That is it. And I mean, I, I'm frustrated with myself too. I mean, I know that probably if I would have been better over the weekend taking the medication, I probably wouldn't feel so crappy today. But so, I mean, I'm, I mean, I know I should, and it's, it's my fault too. Well, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I really am trying to figure out how we can both work together in a way that helps you get the get your needs met and help prevent these headaches. This is awful to see you suffering so much. Thank you. Thoughts? Yeah, take the medicine. You think? All right. <laughs> Yes, we'll, do, we'll accept that. We've, you met Kristen earlier. She gave your motivational interviewing talk. She's good though, right? I mean, you, you, that felt like a real deal patient. Yeah, I, that was a, not an easy uh, um, thing to be on the receiving end of it. But let's go through a little bit of that. You can kind of see where somebody who's organized around getting connected when they're distressed is looking for me rather than help with their headache in the middle of that interaction. They want to feel cared for rather than think what they can do differently. It's a, it's a personality disorder. The, you can see this issue of that limbic arousal with difficulty thinking straight. I mean, she's arguing on the one hand, I want a med that'll fix this. On the other hand, I don't want to take, it doesn't even make sense. It's sort of a nonsensical cognition that's trying to react to an emotion. And the technique is to legitimize the emotion so it'll settle down enough that you can then think straight. And that's really, I think, what I was trying to demonstrate there is we can do that. And I have made this mistake in my career lots and lots of times is I start moving into problem-solving mode when the patient is distressed. And then I end up having a discussion about um, the healthcare system and is the Affordable Care Act a good thing and we're off in the weeds um, before we could even address the problem, you know? And so first principle is really trying to just get um, what's going on. This idea that they have circular thinking and are demanding, some of those quotes from the beginning, means the emotions are up and the thinking is down. So first, lower the emotion by just legitimizing it. I guess this thing's scary. You didn't ask for this struggle with cancer, or diabetes, or headaches, or pain, or whatever. You didn't ask for it probably frightening. Help me know what you're looking for help with. All right, so you just legitimize the experience. Um, and then you can find a both-and way to work together. Second issue is this issue of demands. <clears throat> and again, this is one of these basic things, and the people, people who struggle with borderline will sometimes feel like they need to give in or, or they're in a power struggle or all that kind of stuff. Just sidestep the whole thing. Your job is to practice good medicine within the standards of care. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. 
and leave, leave the patient's feelings out of your medical decision making. Let patients know what you will and won't do. So in my practice, I never, ever prescribe benzodiazepines, opioids, and stimulants together. I don't do it. You can decide which of those three is most important to you. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not, I'm not saying you don't have these diseases. I'm not saying they're not useful meds. I'm just saying I don't do that. So which is most important to you? And you can decide what's most necessary. Surely you don't want me to do something I think is unsafe. Make sense? So you just hold, the, hold your limit in a matter-of-fact way of what you will and won't do, and then it becomes very easy to do this rather than having to feel guilty, um, et cetera, and react to the demands. Third principle is sometimes we do feel guilty or angry at the patient, and fair enough. That's why I opened with those slides from my colleagues with negative feelings about the patients. Fine. You're allowed to have negative feelings about your patients. Most of us did not go into medicine to dislike our patients, and so it's a tough thing internally sometimes. But it's worse. What you want to do is be able to acknowledge it and get some support, go blow off steam in the break room. What you don't want to do is pull away from a patient in distress. That's where it actually does become harmful, and that's way worse than staying engaged. It's way better to stay engaged with the patient and say, oh my God, is this as frustrating for you as it is for me? You know, fine, that's great. You can name it, you could work with it, you could just be there with it. That's, that's good practice. Pulling away is where you get in trouble. And finally is this issue with splits, and I, I had to condense that video from nine minutes down to five, so you, I had to cut the part where I addressed the problem with her um, criticizing my nurse, which was pretty impressive on her part, by the way. The, the, when you're on the good side of the split, and sometimes the, the providers, the clinicians, are on the good side of the split, it's harder to see when you're on the good side. It's real easy to see when you're on the bad side, you know, when you're the one being demonized. When you're on the good side, it's more important, though. You know, so when the patient is devaluing of the colleague or other staff, try to avoid opining on the colleague and reframe it as an opportunity. You know, I, I think um, Dr. Tosh would, would want to hear about your concern, and it'd be good for you to tell him, are you up for it? So some, some key principles um, with meds. Collaborate to determine the goals and set expectations. You know, if you're, you frequently are going to prescribe psych meds to these patients, and we'll talk about which ones can or can't help. But say you're working on headaches or migraines. You know, we're going to know that topiramate was helpful if your headache frequency goes from, you know, four a week down to two a week, all right? So let's track this for the next seven weeks and see how it goes before we decide. Good. That's stabilizing to the patient. It's good practice. Get some looking at themselves, managing it, et cetera and measure the effectiveness of your intervention. Be methodical about it, one thing, and then the next thing, and hold reasonable limits. And that way you can really avoid some of the polypharmacy, needless tests, those kinds of things that these patients can pull for. And then when, it, when we come to psych meds, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the psych meds. There are no FDA-approved meds for borderline personality disorder per se. The dilemma we get is that the antidepressants tend to help a little bit with anger and anxiety. They tend not to help very much with depressed mood, um, to be honest, but they are very safe. And that's the problem is you may get an incremental benefit, but you certainly have a favorable safety profile. The antiepileptic mood stabilizers probably are a little more helpful for borderline symptomatology, 
but they're a lot less safe. Um, Diveal Pro-X in women of childbearing age is off the table for its teratogenicity. And Lamotrigine, if you don't take it every day, the Stevens-Johnson rash risk goes way up. It has it, they have their limitations in terms of good options. The antipsychotics can help for the cognitive and perceptual symptoms. There's one class that's commonly prescribed for borderline that I did not put on this chart. Did you say benzos? Yeah, good answer. And there's a reason it's not on the chart. Um, it's really the only class that's been studied and shown to make borderline patients worse. Alprazolam was the agent that was studied in the study out of the NIH um, that really showed to worsen the outcome of borderline personality disorder. So I really just tell patients that borderline, borderline and benzos don't go well together. And it makes sense that you don't want a med that's a GABA-binding med like alcohol in the middle of an emotional crisis. You need every neuron you've got to think through those difficult moments. So that's, that's kind of where the action is. And we can talk um, some more with, during the question and answer period. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. You can find today's featured talk, along with videos from our world-class medical conferences, at mayotalks.com. New talks are added weekly, so stop by often and let us know what you think. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.